This is Reverend Chuck Blair. Welcome to our weekly podcast on New Church Live. So today's service, the order of service is going to be a little bit different. We're going to start with a prayer. Brian's going to be noodling under it. Then we're going to actually close with a big number that's actually going to be a sung prayer. So we're going to start with just three prayers to get us in the space today. Welcome. Lord, welcome. Welcome. We welcome your spirit here, a spirit that breathes, a spirit that moves, a spirit of love and compassion and truth and goodness. Thank you, Lord, for that spirit. On this day, September 11th, we remember. We remember heartbreak. We remember fear. We remember as well seeing people rise up. Rise up to their best angels. Rise up to the best nature of themselves. Rise up to you. Let today, Lord, be a testimony to that. To rejoicing. To thriving to moving forward as best we can in a world that is often broken. Thank you for your presence here today as we work to flourish. Lord, we're praying for your blessing on the people who are in this house. Fill it with your presence, Lord. Send out your love to those who are online. Thank you for Pastor Chuck, for this amazing band, all the volunteers, the staff. We send out your love, Lord, to all those who are hurting today, all those who are worshiping around the world on your day. And we pray, Lord, that you bless Chelsea and me, that our message fit in with the causes that you care about the most. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for bringing us all to this moment, whatever this moment is. I pray that your love will guide us and lead us in your ways and that we may find strength on the journey in your word. Amen. All right, I get to start the service off, which is fun. I'm really happy to be here and The first song that we're going to share with you is one that I wrote, but I'm going to talk about it for a little while beforehand. Um, The song is based on some stories in the Bible, and there are some passages in the Word that really lend themselves well to songs, Um, you know, like, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, or you have turned for me my mourning into dancing, but... The song I'll be sharing is biblically based, but it's on some stories in the word that don't actually hit the ear as being very inspirational or song-worthy. But the Bible says in countless places how God is love. And he says that, it says that explicitly in 1 John 4, verse 8 and 16. God is love. So shouldn't the Bible just read more like one long love song to us from God? You'd think, since this is the word of God, that you'd be able to open it and more readily feel the Lord's love and support just flowing out of the stories. So I want to share with you how I was able to write a personally meaningful song based on some really strange passages in the Old Testament. Um, God, I think anybody who's tried to walk the spiritual path finds out that our freedom is really important. And 
So I think that's why when you read the word, you're not just forced with this love from God, but actually our reading of scripture starts with us. There's something we need to choose about how we approach it. But the Lord just doesn't leave us hanging either. Um, And I found that there's actually this image right at the beginning of the word, just after the seven days of creation, when you have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And this image becomes a tool that we can use to read the word so that we can hear that love song more easily. And so when Adam and Eve, so I'm going to tell you this little story. When Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden, God places a flaming turning sword to guard the way to the tree of life. But so it's all a lot of imagery here. The tree of life, what is that? For now, just think that's hearing the love song from the Lord in the word. The tree of life, it's in our lives and it's in every story in the word, no matter what seems to be going on the surface. But I think we're always first confronted by a flaming turning sword that seems to be blocking the way. So paradoxes are something that are common in the word. And I think this is part of how it seems to leave us in freedom. Like you can see it one way, or maybe it's to be seen another way. And one, one paradox that turns up a lot is that what seems like the end, or what seems to be blocking access, is actually the way in and forward toward a brighter future. Richard Rohr, he, you know, this Franciscan priest, he says it great that one of the great themes of scripture is that when you read it, you find out that the way down is somehow the way up. And then this is most, you know, powerfully apparent in the Lord's own death and resurrection, that somehow facing death itself was what would lead to the greatest possible spiritual transformation. And so this sword is actually one of those paradoxes. What seems to be keeping us out is actually the way in, or one other way to think about it is that this guard can actually be our guide to hear that love song. So what is it showing us? We're going to look, out, look at the context of where this sword shows up to get a better sense of what is, it, what is it guiding us to. Adam and Eve ended up in this position where they had this flaming turning sword between them and the tree of life because God had said you can eat of any tree in this garden, even the tree of life, just not this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, they eat from that one tree that they had been told not to eat of, and they get moved out of the garden. But it's not just because they ate from that tree. When you read the story, it's because of how they changed once they ate of it. The first thing that happens once they've eaten from this tree is they become ashamed of their nakedness. They realize they're naked, and shame comes on the scene. Shame didn't exist before, so you have shame. And then God actually calls them on it and says, did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You know, once they, he notices they've like made clothes, they've realized they're naked. And what happens here? Adam says, Eve made me do it. <laughs> and then Eve says, the snake made me do it. <laughs> so what would you call that? Blame, right? <laughs> so the two actually rhyme. They've become sh- ashamed. They, they've, that shame is on the scene and they've become blaming. They've gotten caught up in blame. And this is, so immediately they've eaten from this tree, but it's created this change in their state, that they've lost a connection to humility and honesty and vulnerability. And so they get moved out of the garden, and this flaming turning sword gets put in its place to guard their way 
so that they can't get back in. But it's not that they're not allowed to get back in because God never said you can't actually eat from the tree of life. We're still allowed to eat from the tree of life. It's that blame and shame are what are keeping us out. And so how do we make our way to the tree of life in the stories of the word to hear the love that the Lord really has for us in the word? And this sword shows us how. As a paradox, we can see it as a reflection of blame and shame, but it's also, you can think of it as a lens for exactly how to see through blame and shame that would otherwise be turning you away from the tree of life, but instead see it as this is how you get by blame and shame to get to the tree of life, to eat from it and feel nourished from the love that the Lord really has for us and the guidance for our lives. So we're going to look at the two qualities of this sword. Because it's interesting, you know, like not many swords come with flames, like that would be pretty cool. Um, But so first, the sword is turning, and it's sharp. And this, isn't it just the quintessential image of blame? It's sharp and pointing. The word, there's often verses in the word that say, remove from you the pointing of the finger. Because that's this, we have a habit, it seems to happen. I, I wake up in the morning, and the first thing I'm thinking is, how can I blame somebody else for what's going on in my life? Um, but swords in the word aren't really an image for blame all the time. They're actually an image for the revealing quality that divine truth can have for us, that it can actually give us clarity about what's going on inside of us. The Lord himself is called a sword that, who, that will pierce the soul and reveal the qualities of our hearts. And so this sword we can see it as a tool to give us clarity about what's going on inside of us. And when you have clarity, you can see how to move forward no matter what's going on in your life. And so when we read the word, you can remember it's about you. Don't get distracted by what seems to be a story about somebody else in another time or things that have never been in your life before. Remember, as this tool, the word is about you to support us on our journey. And the other quality of this guard is that it's flaming. And these flames can first be a reflection of shame. You know, don't we just burn in shame? And shame is really losing confidence in our own deepest connection to love itself. Brene Brown, a shame researcher, defines shame as feeling like we are unworthy of love and belonging. And so these flames can be a symbol of shame, but they're also a symbol of what we need, the antidote to shame. And that's really what the Lord wants for us, is not this flaming sword of blame and shame, but to be at the tree of life. And so this sword and flames can show us the way, and the flames, so we have it's about us, that's the sword, and the flames are, it's really about love. It's not about condemnation. It's, it's a message of divine love for us personally in our lives. And so when you start to see the paradox for what it really is, that you have a choice. You can see it as keeping us out from the Garden of Eden, but actually it could be showing us the way in. That when we read the word, we can think of the sword and the flames. When we, seem, when we come across passages that seem like they're just blaming us for everything we've done wrong, or that we should feel ashamed about what we've done, or this or that, have that be a little marker to say, oh wait, how is this actually about me? And how is this about love? You know, it's about me, but for love, for support in my personal spiritual life. 
So that's the tool. It's a pretty cool tool, and it's right there, sitting at the very front of the Bible. And then after that, you get to some really weird stories. <laughs> the Bible doesn't make it easy for us. Um, and so I want to show you how I use this tool to write, to eventually come to the point of feeling inspired enough to write a song based on some really strange stories. At a time of intense spiritual struggle, I found myself reading the book of Daniel. Oh, that one. Yep. And um, the book of Daniel, the first half of it is like, ends up in Sunday school lessons, you know, like you have Daniel in the lion's den and all these great things that happen to Daniel. Um, but the second half of it is really weird. But when I happened to find myself reading the book of Daniel, I was driven by this idea of how could this be a message for me personally, and how could it be from divine love itself who wants to have a relationship with me? And so the second half of the book of Daniel, he's recounting these night visions he's having of the end of days. So there you go. You have that keyword end. And if you read the book of Daniel, you'll find it's not the end. It's actually ushering in this amazing new beginning that's coming, but it sounds intense, and this time is really intense, and Daniel's having these night visions and writing them down, and what he's seeing are these warring kings, a king of the north and a king of the south, and he's seeing, and it's a time of the most severe anguish, and then there's this really weird horn that keeps showing up, and I'm going to focus on this horn so first, it's seen on an enormous beast, and then later it's seen on a goat that's battling a ram. And in both cases, the horn starts small, and then it grows enormously until it reaches the height of heaven, and then the horn, not the animal that it's on, starts to do all the wreaking of havoc. It starts to, it overturns the sanctuary and casts truth to the ground. So that's weird enough, right? Like, my kids have never drawn a little black and white picture of a horn that's, you know, doing horrible things. But this horn has, it gets even weirder. It has its own eyes and its own mouth. So it says there were eyes like human eyes in this horn and a mouth speaking arrogant words. And so there's a good dose of weird. Um, but so how, you know, I'm reading this story and I'm feeling intense feelings inside of myself, feeling like when will there be a shift in my life? And so somehow this horn is about me and it's about love. How can this horn be about me and about love? And I came to see how it actually was a perfect depiction of the inner spiritual struggle that I was going through. And even specifically, those two key words, blame and shame, that were seemed to be wreaking havoc inside of me. So the first quality of the horn is that it seems like it's a part of this animal, right? Like, you don't usually identify an animal by its horn and say, look at the horn. It's the animal has a horn. It's not that the horn has an animal. But this horn seems to have a life and an agenda of its own. It's not following the animal's rules. It's just off wreaking havoc. And so thoughts of blame and feelings of shame can feel so justified and unquestionable. Like they really are us. Like they're just growing out of us because they just are an extension of who we are. They, somehow these thoughts and feelings can seem like they know more about us than we do of ourselves. Like they, start, they cause us to doubt ourselves because of what they're telling us. And so that second element of this horn is it actually has its own eyes and its own mouth. And so blame and shame 
they try to direct our attention. These eyes are getting us to focus on things so that we lose sight of everything good that might be happening in our lives and we're just focused on this one thing. Or, and with the mouth speaking arrogant words, I just think that's just the, that toxic flow that we might constantly be getting from thoughts of blame of ourselves or getting caught up on something somebody else has been doing. And then same with feelings of shame. And so um, that in itself was a sort of aha moment to me of like, this horn was actually helping me to see clearer about what was going on inside of me. Um, It was giving me a way to deal with what otherwise felt like just overwhelming inner turmoil. But what can we do about it? Um, And the word even has something for that too. And so just like a couple chapters before this, during the day, this prophet Daniel, he's serving in the court of the king of Babylon, who at one point is King Belshazzar. And this king reaches an extreme level of arrogance. And so he's throwing this drinking party and he decides these cups aren't good enough. Give me the gold and silver vessels from the temple. And so as soon as he's got these other cups and he's having this drinking party, a disembodied hand appears and writes four words on the wall. These words are, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. So that's pretty terrifying. If anybody, if that happened to you, I think you'd be a little bit afraid. And so Belshazzar calls to the prophet Daniel and gets him and says, come interpret these words for me. And Daniel interprets them as numbered, weighed, divided. And so when he interprets them for Belshazzar, he says, his days have been numbered, he's been weighed and found wanting, and his kingdom will be divided. And this signals a judgment for Belshazzar, and he dies that night. So that's the end of him. But we're seeing these words too. (laughs) And they're about us. They're not about Belshazzar. And they're about love, not condemnation, as it might seem on the surface. And thinking about it that way, it gives us a way to deal with that horn that's wreaking havoc in the second half. And so all of these words have a quality of discernment and choice about them, numbering, weighing, dividing. And so I think first we identify the quality when, when thoughts of blame, when we start to see this horn, you know, rising up inside of ourselves, we can give it a number, give it a weight, you know, weigh it, remember its quality. Is this really actually serving my life and my well-being, or is it ruining how I feel inside and it's trying to destroy my relationships? And then when they start coming up again, you remember that number and that weight. Oh, that has that quality. Divide. I'm not going to let that have power through my actions. We can remember its number and weight and then create an inner division, which then will eventually, it's like ripping up the plants that come up that eventually kills the root system that's underneath when we just refuse to let these have power through our actions. And so at the time that I wrote this song, I this imagery in Daniel was giving me an outlet and a way to deal with what otherwise was just feeling like an intense, insurmountable spiritual struggle. And I found help for it in these stories, in these weird stories in the book of Daniel. But it required intention on my part. 
the intention to figure out how could these stories be a loving message of God for me in my spiritual life to support me. And so when you open the word, you're going to see a flaming turning sword. I guarantee it, you know? But when you see that, when you see this language, this intense, scary language and these blaming, accusing words and everything, remember, wait, that in itself can be a reminder, how is this actually about me and how is this actually a loving message from divine love itself catered to me personally in my life? And so I don't think... I hope you feel encouraged to use this tool for yourselves and to not wait for the Bible to change or for somehow those flames and the sharp edge of the sword to just disappear, but think, how can we jump in to Scripture right now? Because this is the Lord's Word, right? This is this ultimate love song. And we, I think we could be getting so much more help out of it, and I think we can use this tool. It's helped me, so when I read the Word, I think, how is it about love? How is it for me in my life? and not about anybody else for the moment, just me sitting at the feet of the Lord. And so this song, Grafted, that I wrote that we're going to perform, you can think of it as being on this journey back to the tree of life. It's not easy. It doesn't happen in a moment, but it's promised. And so, and it's, this song is based on this imagery in Daniel. And I want to mention that I didn't get to go through everything. This song is actually like 65% biblical references. And so if you hear anything that catches your ear, you can look it up in like BibleGateway.com. Um, and one other thing is that the kings of Babylon are often said to have their hearts lifted up, which we might think is a positive thing, but it's really a term to mean like getting caught up in pride and in self-absorption. So it's not a positive thing. And that's how I'm using it in this song. Let me get a sip of water. Mm. Can't trust my heart, can't trust my mind. The king of the south is bent on evil, the king of the north is speaking lies. My heart's lifted up, the truth is cast down. Eyes and eyes are blurred and hunger, looking only for my crown. There's a horn that's growing wider between my heart and mind. It's got eyes that are set on me and sweet words that turn me blind. It's setting fever to my thoughts, drying my heart of all its hope. Can't imagine life without it, without the warm friction of its robe. I've been waiting found wanting, what is this sickness growing inside? Lost reason and understanding, being the only one I've glorified. I've been told that freedom's possible, that there's a different way to live. But it sure does seem impossible that it's hold would ever give. My heart's lifted up, the truth is cast down. But there's one who is trustworthy and his word won't let me drown. Mene, mene, tekelu, farsin, the writing's on the wall. Be numbered, wait and be divided, or this horn will be your fall. Sell all you have, anoint the most high. 
The street and wall can be rebuilt even in troublesome times. Mene, mene, tekelu, farce, and gotta shine a light inside. Be numbered, weighed, and be divided, lest the heart of stone be magnified. Sell all you have, anoint the most high. A heart of flesh can take its place when that horn's been moved aside. Transform my heart, transform my mind. May this horn be crucified and my soul grafted to the vine. May this horn be crucified and my soul grafted. In my spiritual life, I've done a lot of waiting. I mean, Scripture does say, wait for the Lord, but I may have taken that a little too literally and passively. It made sense to me, though, because if two people are going to meet with each other and one of them has more power than the other, the one with less power often has to wait for the one with more power. For example, if you have a child and the principal wants to see that child, the child will go to the principal's office. If the principal's busy and behind the closed door, the child will sit in the waiting room and just, and just wait. And, and then after a while, the principal will come to the door, call you in, show you where to sit, start the meeting, end the meeting, and the child leaves. And even with adults, if we go to the governor of Pennsylvania or someone and we're summoned there, we will sit in a waiting room. Some aide will bring us in. We'll be told where to sit and the governor will start the meeting and end the meeting. So it made perfect sense to me that with God who is all powerful, I should wait for him. I should just be in a waiting room, just waiting for the Lord to start things, get things going. The problem was that it seemed as though the Lord had no interest in meeting with me. The longer I waited, the longer nothing seemed to happen. I was praying a lot at that time in my life, but other than that, things were not moving forward in my spiritual life, and I was actually going through quite a lot of uh, pain and loneliness and other things in my spirit. And one day, by the divine sense of humor, I was literally sitting in a waiting room, a loved one was going through surgery, and I had a couple of hours to kill. And so I was reading, as we all do in waiting rooms, Emanuel Swedenborg's True Christianity. <laughs> and I read this. Our partnership, and that means our partnership between us and the Lord, our partnership with the Lord comes about as we move closer to the Lord, and the Lord moves closer to us. What? I thought I'm supposed to be a good boy in, in, in the waiting room, just, you know, waiting. I, I, I was supposed to start the meeting, and nobody told me. This is how it continues. This is the second part of the quote. For it is a fixed and unchangeable law 
that the closer we move toward the Lord, the closer the Lord moves toward us. I was stunned. I was dumbfounded. To be British, I was gobsmacked. I, I, I was just thunderstruck. Uh, nothing really in my whole life, I've been around sacred texts a lot, nothing has kicked me in the head like this statement. I can still remember where I was when I read it. It had that kind of force on me. I found out later that this is in the Bible too. You read in the epistle of James, come near to God and he will come near to you. Again, we move and then God moves. In. I, didn't, I didn't know this. And one more from Revelation chapter 3, this familiar statement. Here I am, says the Lord. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. No wonder the Lord hadn't started the meeting. It wasn't that the Lord didn't care to meet with me. That's just not how it works. So I want to act this out. If Chelsea can join me here, I'm going to go over to this other seat here to show you myself in the waiting room. And I'm just waiting and waiting, hoping the Lord sort of starts things off at some point. Every so often I look over at the Lord and I think, oh yeah, the Lord has his back to me. Yeah. But he is sort of looking at me now and then. Um, okay, and then I read, wait, it's my job? I'm supposed to move closer to the Lord? Well, I, I, I want to be in this relationship, sure. I want to move over. And then I think, well, I don't know, it could be intense. I, I have some evils that I really love that are over here. I, I, um, no, no, that's just been a world of hurt and pain. I, I want this thing. I want this thing. So I move closer to the Lord. <laughs> now, now, it's easy to act that out, and it's easy to move physically closer to someone who you can actually see with your eyes. But how do I move my spirit closer to the Lord? Well, Scripture has an answer. The very verse before that knock on the door passage says this, Repent. Now, there's a word that could bring up blame and shame and so forth. That's not the way the Lord intends it. And the rest of that come near to God passage from James. The very rest of that very verse says this. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, again, these words may evoke the blame and shame that Chelsea was talking about. But if we get beyond that, we can see that that is a message of love. The Lord is telling us how to move into a state of love with him. And cleanse your hands and purify your heart means stop doing and stop loving evil. So ever since that shocking realization in the waiting room, I've been working to move closer to the Lord in my life because I've really wanted to have this relationship with the Lord. And it's brought many blessings, including this album, the Spirit and Life Bible study that I'm blessed to do, this service today, but I have found, as I imagine you have too, friends, that that particular door doesn't exactly fly open the first time you put your hand on it. It's as if at some time in the past I unwittingly painted or even nailed it shut. <laughs> Nevertheless, there has been progress. It's been very rewarding. It's gradual, but it's rewarding and encouraging. But what about that scripture from earlier that said, wait for the Lord? The full quote is, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart and wait for the Lord. If wait for the Lord really meant do nothing, 
your call is very important to me. I'll be right with you. You know, um, why would it say be strong? We're supposed to be doing something. There's something active about this, this waiting for the Lord. Another question is, why would the Lord set it up this way when it's so unlike power in this world? If you think about it for a while, I think you'll see that this is the alternative. I don't know if you can see that image, but it's a robot army. The Lord has a remote control. You know, just, you know, there would be no individuality. There'd be no human buy-in and everything. And so that's why the Lord has it be this way. The Lord has it be this way so that our own individuality is engaged, so we have the option to, we can opt in, we can decide not to do it, and if we do decide to move closer to the Lord, we can move at our own pace. And isn't it like the Lord to turn this whole thing around? I want to go back to where I was before and have Chelsea over there again, where I was sitting and waiting I think I'm in the waiting room and the Lord is in the front office. What has the Lord done? He says, I stand at the door and knock. He put me in the office. He says, no, where you are is the office. I'm in the waiting room, says the Lord. I'm waiting. And it's not that the Lord is just automatic. When I move closer to the Lord, the reason the Lord moves closer to me exactly as I move closer is because he was on board from, from day one. He wants nothing more than to connect with us. So as soon as I move, he's like, great, now I'm allowed to move. You know, now I'm allowed to get closer. That's the way the Lord does it. So this is precisely what my song called The Door is all about. It's the first cut on the Clear Shining After Rain album. And the version I want to play for you right now is solo and unplugged and shorter than what's on the record. But it's about this very issue and this very turning point in my spiritual life. When my spirit first awoke There was darkness all around It was painful and I was lonely And feeling down You know I wanted Something different But I did not Know what to do So I cried out In the darkness And prayed to you And now the darkness Stayed just as thick But the thought Grew more and more That somewhere In this darkness Must be a door I was waiting For you, Lord And looking for you To make things square But then I read that it was my job to make the first move and prepare so I got busy and laid some junk aside and moved things across 
across my floor when my hand in the darkness came on a door and I felt you knocking and heard you calling outside my door so Lord I'm pulling on the handle oh won't you please push on that door cause I don't want to live without you anymore Aside my evils Oh won't you please Come through that door Cause there's no reason To live without you Anymore So Lord I'm pulling On the handle I think I feel you Pushing on that door so glad that you'll be with me forevermore yes I'm so glad that you'll be with me So we've talked a lot about not waiting, but when you start to move forward, this certainly is an intense path. But it's important to remember not to wait, just to feel good, to rejoice. In fact, the Bible says that we should rejoice even at the worst moments in our lives. We have four brief biblical passages about this. Now, I want to say up front, it makes no earthly sense to rejoice and thank the Lord when bad things happen or when we feel terrible. But it must make heavenly sense because people in the Bible do it. A lot. The Lord did not want the bad thing to happen, but he can turn it into a blessing. So even before we know what the blessing is, we can thank him for the blessing. And we can assume the worse the problem is, the bigger the blessing that's sitting on the other side of it. Kind of a leap of faith, but Scripture tells us to do this. Don't wait until we can see the blessing to start rejoicing and thanking the Lord. So here's one such quote from Luke chapter 6, 
It talks about people hating us, excluding us, insulting us, and it says, rejoice in that day. Don't even wait. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Mm. In another Bible story, Paul, one of the worst fears that Paul had comes true, and he's shipwrecked with many other people on an island for four months in the middle of winter. And here's what he does from Acts. He took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And Daniel, who we were hearing about earlier, is one of 63 governors in his adopted country. And he finds out at one point that all 62 other members of the government want to kill him now. And here's what he does. Now, when Daniel went home, he went upstairs, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, as had been his custom in the past. It's a practice. He was in the practice of thanking God, and he didn't skip a beat even when he found out there was a plot against his life. It's amazing. What is it in us that is able to do that, thanking the Lord and rejoicing in that face of that situation? Yeah, Jonah another one of the minor prophets, he jumps overboard and is in the sea and he gets swallowed by a great whale. And in the belly of the whale, he does this. I, with shouts of grateful praise, yes, um, will sacrifice to you. Voice of thanksgiving, right. Yep. Mm. So these are four examples of just rejoicing and leaping for joy even when things are going badly. So it's poignant to me on 9-11, on this anniversary and so on, to remember to thank the Lord for the blessings. He didn't want that to happen, but he can bring blessings out of it. And um, so, when I was practicing this, trying this sort of rejoicing when I feel bad or when things are going badly in my life, a little song came to me. I'm going to go over to the keyboard and give myself a note here. Um, Simple little song that I just sung to myself. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Doesn't matter if you feel it or not, you know. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. The third one's just like the first. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Then the fourth one goes down. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Do you want to try it with me, Chelsea? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then you insert your nightmare here. You know, you can say that. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. (laughs) Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. So do you think you could do that, friends? Could you sing that with us as spiritual work. Let's try this, shall we? So here's your note. We'll practice. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Mm, that's good. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Then the last one goes down. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's good. Now, uh, this song, so we wrote a song for the album that uses this as its chorus. However, uh, another daughter of mine said, um, 
that the lyrics are somewhat minimalist, especially when you consider that the Hebrew word hallelujah means, as luck would have it, praise the Lord. So, um, so Chelsea wrote some lyrics for this song. Do you want to say anything about those? Yeah, it was really fun to write the verses for it. And because I was thinking about praising the Lord when things aren't going well, that's a hard practice. And it can be equally hard when things are going really well in your life to just let yourself enjoy it and not just sit in fear constantly of when it's going to get worse again or something. And so I was trying to reflect that in these verses I wrote, that this is a good practice to have whether things are going well or not. That's right. And so as a conclusion of our morning here, um, to move from our false self to our true self, which is part of the series that New Church Live is doing right now, to flourish in our lives and to move forward both individually and collectively on 9-11 and heal this date with its painful memories, let's try three things. Let's not wait until Scripture seems appealing. Let's look for the love in it now. Let's not wait to see how the Lord feels and whether He wants to meet. Let's move closer to Him now. And let's not wait until we actually feel good. Let's rejoice now. So as Pastor Chuck said, this last song will be a prayer in effect. And I'd like to ask you to sing along with us. And I'll point out when the... um, you know, when the choruses come. And then on the last time around, uh, we'll just do it a cappella and I'll sort of conduct you a little bit and we'll get through it. Thank you, friends. Okay.
podcast at www.newchurchlive.tv. 